As we dig into God's word, (laughs) this text is going to rub a little. I'm saying this because I've been wrestling with the text this week myself. It's convicted me. It's challenged me. And the only way that we're going to be challenged and convicted is if we're going into this knowing that we are looking at and hearing God's word. This is the word of God. And so as we approach this text, let's approach it with humble hearts, knowing that God desires what's best for us and he desires his own glory And so I pray that he would change us and transform us to look more and more like Jesus. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, it's going to be a large section, verses 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, prepare our minds to hear your word. Move our hearts to embrace what we hear and strengthen us to obey you in all areas of our lives. We pray through Christ, our Savior. Amen. The 19th century Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said this, 
The world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us. They read our lives a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus. So in this passage before us, Peter is urging Christians to live godly lives, which is one of the most effective ways for making the gospel attractive and believable. And so this morning, we're going to be separating the text into three portions. In verses 11 and 12, we're going to see the goal of godly living. In verses 13 through 20, we're going to see the practice of godly living. And in verses 21 through 25, the grace of godly living. In my main point for the sermon this morning, what I would hope you would leave here remembering is this, that believers submit to authority for the sake of the lost and the glory of God. Believers submit to authority for the sake of the lost and the glory of God. All right, first we're going to look at the goal of godly living. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. In these two verses, Peter reminds his readers of who they are in Christ and how they are to live as witnesses to the world around them. Notice he calls his readers beloved. He's reminding them that they are loved and chosen by God. And as God's chosen people, they are also sojourners and exiles in this world. Peter's been on this theme ever since verse 1. As believers, our citizenship is in heaven. We are no longer at home in this world. And as exiles, we're going to be watched by those who do belong to this world. If you've ever visited a foreign land or lived in a foreign land, you'll notice pretty quickly that the locals watch you. And they're prone to find things to criticize about you. And so as those who have been born again, we no longer belong to this world system, but we do live alongside those who do. And Peter says in verses 11 and 12 that we must live in a distinct way. We must live lives that are marked by the gospel. We must live holy lives that represent who God is and what he has done. And so he urges us to do two things. Do you see that in the text? I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. How do we follow Jesus in a strange and hostile world? We resist evil and we do good. So Peter tells his readers in verse 11 to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's urging us to be disciplined and actively saying no to sin. Even though we've been born again with new longings to obey God and pursue holiness, we still struggle with our flesh. We sin. We're tempted to sin. There's this ongoing battle within us between the spirit and the flesh. Before believing in Jesus, we were controlled by our sinful desires. There was no way to say no to sin. But because we have new life in Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, 
We can resist those desires and temptations. That's why Peter is saying this here. Since you have the ability to say no to sin, abstain from the sinful desires of the flesh. These are the greatest threat to the well-being of our souls. There is this war that has been waged with our souls. And so we must resist these passions. We must wage war back. We must go to battle and put them to death. We are to resist evil, but we are also to do good. While abstaining is something that we do internally, Peter encourages us to do something outwardly. In verse 12, he says, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. When Peter uses the word Gentile here, he's not referring to the ethnic group of the Gentiles because he's writing to them, but he's referring to unbelievers when he uses that word Gentiles. We are to live among unbelievers in an honorable way. And the Greek word for honorable here is rich in meaning. It means having a beautiful outward form. Having the loveliest kind of visible goodness. Peter is saying that we should live in a way that when believers look at, when unbelievers look at our lives, they should think, wow, that's a beautiful life. There's so much goodness there. Peter knew because he experienced it himself that the unbelieving world would falsely accuse these believers. In the first century, there were many accusations made against Christians. That they were rebelling against the Roman government. That they practiced cannibalism because they celebrated the Lord's Supper, saying that they were eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. They were accused of being involved in all sorts of, sorts of immorality because they spoke of love so much. And so as the unbelieving world accused God's people of being evildoers, the way in which they lived their lives, resisting evil and doing good, would result in God being glorified. Look at verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When the world hurls insults, and tries to misrepresent you, we must live in the opposite way, by proving them wrong, by living our lives in honorable ways. This will give credibility to the gospel. When unbelievers see us living honorable and beautiful lives, some will actually believe some will get saved and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's referring to when Christ returns. And he's probably reminded of when Jesus taught him in Matthew 5, 16. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This was a teaching that Peter learned from Jesus himself. Remember last week when we saw that the reason for us being a chosen people is so that we would proclaim the excellence of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here we are called to display that light to the world, to live honorable lives among those who are in darkness. 
And so in order to evangelize effectively, our lives that have been transformed by the gospel must be visible to the outside world. This is the goal of godly living, for the lost to see Jesus in us, for them to see our good deeds and glorify God. And so what motivates us to do this? We'll cover more of this later on, but quickly take a look at verses, verse 21. Peter writes, For to this you have been called. So everything that's going to be commanded here comes from this verse. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. This is our motivation. No one understands unjust treatment from the world and from authority like Jesus. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So what are these steps? Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus committed no sin. As we abstain from the passions of the flesh, we are following his example. And because of his sacrifice in bearing our sin, we are enabled to live lives to righteousness, to live holy lives, to live beautiful and attractive lives amongst the lost. Jesus is our motivation for godly living and the one who enables us to actually live that way. All right, so we have seen the goal of godly living. It's for the lost to see our good deeds and for God to be glorified. We do not witness only with our lips. We don't just talk the talk. We walk the walk. Our good works must back up our good words. All right, so next we're going to see the practice of godly living. What does it look like to be lived out? Peter's going to get more specific, and he's going to get more personal. In the next verses, we're going to see how God desires his people to live in the context of authority. We submit to authority for the Lord's sake. Take a look at verses 13 through 17. Be subject be subject for the Lord's sake. Here Peter is repeating himself. What's the goal? It's not because we, we, sh we should do the right thing or we should do it because we're not going to get so that we don't get in trouble. No, we are subject. We submit for the glory of God, for the Lord's sake. To who? To every human institution. Whether that be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And here Peter is keeping that theme going. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What's the goal? It's the glory of God. And to live in a beautiful and holy way that silences those who want to accuse us. We silence the critics by doing good. We are commanded here to be subject or to be submissive to every human institution. Every human institution. 
As citizens of heaven, Christians submit fully to God's authority. But we can, we can misapply that truth by becoming indifferent to the world in which we live in. And this makes us miss out on amazing opportunities for the gospel. We live in a time where there's much suspicion about authority, right? I, are we in agreement there? There's much suspicion of those who are in authority. And we even have a tendency towards wanting anti-authority. But the Bible, God's word, doesn't call us to anti-authority. In fact, that leads to anarchy, and none of us would want to live in anarchy. But Peter here tells us to submit ourselves to every human institution. So what this means is that we submit to all of those who are in authority over us. All of those who are in authority over us. This means the federal government, our state government, our local city government. This could be a hard one, guys. We submit to the President of the United States. We submit to the governor of Illinois. We submit to the mayor of Elgin. I know, I admit it. It's a hard word to hear. But this is not optional for Christians. We are commanded to submit to authority. But submitting to them does not mean that we approve of everything that they do. We can be submissive and also disagree with policies and laws that are put in place. But it's important that we respect the office, even if we don't respect the man or woman in that office. We must respect the office. And so are you respecting the office right now? Would your friends on Facebook or neighbors say, yeah, you're honoring the emperor. You're honoring the, the authority over your lives. Would your Facebook feed say that? Would the signs in your yard say that? And why do we do this? Why do we submit to the government? We do this for the Lord's sake. God in his sovereignty places rulers and authority to rule. And because of this, we must submit to the human institutions that he's ordained. This is what God's word says. Whether it be the emperor or the king or the president or the governor or police, these people are placed in these positions to do two things. To punish those who do evil and to reward those who do good. These leaders exist they're ordained by God to maintain peace and order in our society. And God has placed them there to do it. Some leaders are better than others at accomplishing these two things. But this command does not exclude leaders who make bad or unjust decisions. Despite the evil that occurs, because people are sinful and institutions are imperfect, believers must trust that God still rules sovereignly over kings and rulers and nations. And this is not an isolated text. 
The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The text is pretty clear here. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Before you start to say, well, Peter isn't living in our time. We must, cons- we must consider, you know, the time in which we live, it's different. Let's consider Peter's time. When this letter was written, the emperor Nero was in charge. He was the guy who used people's tax money to kill Christians. And he was also the guy that crucified Peter. The apostles lived in an openly sinful existence under the Roman government. The same cultural issues that we're facing currently were prevalent then. The murdering of babies, immorality, violence, the abuse of women, and government corruption. The biblical command here is to submit to this authority, even unreasonable, evil, and harsh rulers. Now, I know some of you are already thinking and have been thinking ever since I read the text, hold on, hold on. Certainly there are times in which we wouldn't do what somebody in authority tells us to, right? We're so quick to think that way, right? We're prone to seek out the exceptions. But to ease you, there are exceptions. Yes, there are definite clear ways in which we should not submit to the authority over us. If something is commanded or legislated that is in direct contradiction to God's word. If that happens, then we don't obey it. We see examples of this in the Bible. The Hebrew midwives, they were told to kill all male children in Egypt. The, the king of Egypt commanded them to do this, but, but they didn't do it. Why? Because they feared God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't obey the king's orders. Why? Because they obeyed God. In Acts 4, seems like this is like my favorite text because I think it's the third time I've mentioned it in three sermons. Peter and John were, were told not to preach the gospel. And they very politely told the rulers, sorry, but we're going to have to disobey you on this. We're going to continue preaching the gospel. But keep in mind, in all these cases, they were not dishonorable. They were not disrespectful. They politely disobeyed. And so if we ever get to the point in which our government tells us that we can't preach the gospel or teach what the Bible says, then we should very respectfully disobey the government. Pastors in Canada Canada are having to do this currently because there's a law recently that was put in place that says it's illegal to teach what the Bible says about human sexuality. 
that ever happened here, we would politely disobey. We would teach what God's word says. But really what Peter is getting at here in this text is that we often have a human tendency to not honor our government because we don't consider it as being placed there by God. And so we seek to retaliate like the world does instead of humbly submitting and potentially suffering. If you look very quickly at verse 23, Peter talks about Christ's suffering. Peter writes, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus humbly submitted himself not only to God's authority and will, but to the Roman authorities. Jesus submitted to the Roman authorities. In John 19, Jesus was before the governor, Pilate, and Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus understood that the Lord had given that authority to Pilate, but he humbly submitted to that authority. We follow the example of Christ by submitting to earthly authority to honor God's authority. Take a look at verse 16. Peter writes, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Someone may argue, but as Christians, are we not free? Yes, we're free in Christ. But we must never use our freedom for ourselves. We must use it for the good of others and for God's glory. The freedom mentioned here is our spiritual freedom. As a result of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, we have been freed from the condemnation of sin. We've been freed from the bondage of Satan, from the world's control. We are freed to live holy lives. We're not to use our spiritual freedom as a cover-up for evil. What Peter is saying here is that there's a danger that we could use Scripture or use our faith in a way in order to find a way to not have to obey the government even when it's not in direct contradiction to God's word. We do that. Let's not go seeking ways in order to disobey our government. Yes, let's disobey if they tell us to disobey God. All in agreement on that? Yep. I know we're not a charismatic church, but... Right? I feel like we should, we should agree, right? If the government tells us to disobey God, we will not disobey God. But in our normal, everyday lives... Let's seek to be good citizens. We submit to the authorities, not because we are their servants. We submit to the authorities because we are God's servants. At times, we're going to have to submit to unjust leaders and structures. But as we do that, God is glorified. And when we sinfully rebel against earthly authorities, we testify to the world that our hope is in earthly things. Peter has had experience in this. What did he do during the arrest of Jesus? He whipped out that sword 
and went after the high priest's servant. But here Peter is telling us to not do that. He's learned from experience. He's saying that when we cling to Christ's sovereign lordship, we are free to submit to civil authority, demonstrating that our hearts are not caught up with this world and its passing pleasures. Take a look at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Here's a summary of what Peter is getting at. Honor everyone. This refers to all people. Since everyone is made in the image of God, they have dignity and worth. And so Christians, as Christians, we are not to discriminate against any class of people because of ethnicity, nationality, economic status, political opinions. We are to honor all people. We are to love the brotherhood. This refers to our brothers and sisters in the church Since God has caused us to be born again into a family to become a new people, we should love one another. Sometimes we're going to disagree, even on the ideas of government. But Peter is telling us when when that happens, we are to love one another, even in our differences. We are to fear God and honor the emperor. These two go together. We honor the emperor. Why? Because we fear God. We honor our president. Why? Because we fear God. We fear God alone. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 tells us to pray for those in authority. Our civil life, our our life in a public square is important. There are people who are watching us. And so we should make it a habit, habit to pray for those in authority for us. For as many times as you criticize Joe Biden and Governor Pritzker or whatever leader that comes to mind, you should also be praying for him or her. Praying that they make righteous decisions. Their job is very difficult. Pray that the ungodly policies that currently exist are removed. And as those around us watch us, Not acting in a worldly way by just continually complaining about the government. But they see us active in it. They see us honoring those in authority. They see us praying for our leaders. They see us having a hope beyond this world and standing up for our beliefs. May their criticism be proven false. That they would see our good deeds and give glory to God. And then in verses 18 through 20, Peter turns to a second context in which which we must be submissive. He writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Here Peter, in this letter, is addressing the weakest members in the first century society, the household servants or slaves. In the Roman Empire during the time of this letter, slavery was not race-based, it was status-driven. 
And although first century slavery was radically different than the race-based slavery that we experience here in the United States, it was still slavery. Peter tells these household servants, these slaves, to submit themselves to their masters with all respect. Not only to the masters who were kind and gentle with them, but also to the unjust, the ones that were harsh with them, the ones that beat them. And then he points to Christ as the example of the suffering servant. And there's no Christian slaves today, at least in this New Testament sense, but what Peter wrote does have application to us. We can translate this into modern terms, um, even though it's not as equal to that type of situation. In broader terms, these verses can speak to the employee-employer relationship. Most of us work under authority. Those of us who are under the authority of our employers are to be submissive to them, whether they are kind or unkind to us. This means that when a boss or supervisor treats us unfairly, maybe favors somebody else at work, or makes us the brunt of the blame all the time, maybe they take credit for work that we did, when they mismanage us and undercut us, maybe they they mock us, for being Christians in the workplace, the Christian response is not one of fighting back. It's continuing to be submissive to the authority that God has placed over our lives. And our initial gut reaction here is to retaliate, to prove ourselves to be in the right. But the Christian life is one that refuses to return evil for evil. And this is hard. And there are definitely situations in which the best thing to do is to leave. But there also are situations in which God calls us to stay, to suffer patiently. Maybe a coworker or our boss will see our constant, faithful, beautiful living as we suffer. They will see these good deeds and it will make them want to know why we act that way. God can and wants to use us and use our suffering in this way. Anybody, including an unbeliever, can take suffering when he is in the wrong, but it takes a dedicated Christian to take it when he's in the right. If we sin or mess up, we deserve the punishment that comes our way. But how do we act when we don't mess up, but still are punished as if we did? Peter gives us the key to this. He says, what pleases God is being mindful of him. Take a look at verse 19. He says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. We must at all times be motivated by an awareness that God is watching us and he'll reward us accordingly. So what gracious thing to suffer unjustly? Because when we refuse to react to suffering in sinful ways, it makes us like Jesus and testifies to our confidence in God. It's more important that believers demonstrate their submission to his sovereignty over every area of their life rather than protesting against the problems in their their workplace. Because the overarching point here in this section is that we maintain our testimony before the watching world of sinners. 
One commentator said this, whenever believers encounter trials on the job, they ought to view them as opportunities for spiritual growth and evangelism. Do we do that? (laughs) When you encounter trials on the job, do you view them as opportunities for spiritual growth and evangelism? The chief reason God allows believers to remain in this world is so that he might use them to win the lost and thereby bring glory to his name. So we have seen the goal of godly living, the practice of godly living, and lastly, let's look at the grace of godly living. We don't have to try and imagine what this type of living is supposed to look like because we've been given the perfect example Take a look at verse 21 again. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. What Peter has already pointed out in this letter is, is that the path to glory is through the path of suffering. And as Christ's followers, we are to follow that pattern. We are to follow in his steps Look at verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The sufferings of Jesus that Peter presents here come from Isaiah 53, which portrays Jesus, the Messiah, as the suffering servant. Jesus was sinless. He never had a sinful thought. He never did anything wrong. He never lied. But all sorts of accusations were thrown at him. Yet he was silent. When the unjust rulers and authorities put him through torture and suffering, during the hours preceding his death, he suffered under mockery and physical torture. He did not threaten them. But he left his destiny in the hands of of God. And as the sovereign son of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, he could have blasted his enemies away with one word. But he did not threaten them. And he trusted in his heavenly father. This is an example for us. As we face the unjust authority in our lives, we are not to retaliate, but to live honorable lives to honor the leaders that God has ordained, and to trust him who judges justly. Take a look at verse 24, which points us back to what Peter had just said in verse 21. Christ suffered for us. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Yes, Jesus is our example, but Peter is presenting far more than an example. Jesus cannot be an example of suffering for us to follow unless he is first the Savior whose sufferings were endured on our behalf. We're not saved by following Christ's example. Living godly lives does not save us. Obeying the government and our employers does not save us. Sinners need a Savior not an example. Jesus is our redeemer. He's taken the punishment for our sins. Peter presents this great doctrine of substitutionary atonement, 
Since Jesus is the only person who has never committed a sin, he was able to act as our substitute and bear the penalties for our sins on the cross. And this is a comfort for Christians. Because of Christ's sacrifice, our suffering is not punishment. Paul reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as we suffer through the accusations of those who dislike us for our faith, our hearts can remain calm because God has satisfied his own wrath in his own son's death. And because of this, sin no longer has power over us. And we are enabled to live lives in obedience to God, to live to righteousness. Through his wounds on the cross, we are spiritually healed from the deadly disease of sin. Jesus not only is our example, he is our substitute, but he is also our shepherd. Take a look at verse 25. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherds. The animal sacrifices provided temporary atonement for sinners. But at Calvary, the one true shepherd died for the sheep. We were like lost sheep, ignorant, in danger, away from a place of safety and unable to help ourselves. But Christ, the shepherd, went looking for us. He found us and he died for us. Now we have returned to the fold and we are under his care. Our souls are being watched over by Jesus Christ. We must make this connection. Jesus is the one who died for our sins, who loves us, and he desires the best for us. He's also the one commanding us to submit to the unjust authority in this world. He is the example and the one who watches over us. He will take care of you. As we live godly lives and submit in times of suffering, we are following Christ's example and becoming more like him. The unsaved world is watching us. But the shepherd in heaven is also watching over us. So we have nothing to fear. We can submit to him and to the authority he has placed over our lives, knowing that he will work everything together for our good and his glory. Believers submit to authority for the sake of the lost and the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that this is a hard word because we are prone to rebel and retaliate when placed in situations where people are slandering us and in situations in which we are suffering. Help us to be reminded that you are the one who has instituted all the authorities that are in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our rebellious spirits. Teach us to be submissive and respectful to those in authority over us. And Lord, we pray for our leaders that you would give them wisdom, that you would lead them, and that you would save them. 
Remind us that our hope is not in this world, but in the world to come. Help us to be a light in this dark world. We pray that as we say no to sin, and as we live lives that are honorable, as we submit to the authority you have placed in our lives, that the lost would see our good deeds and be saved. We pray for your glory in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.